There we go. All right. Let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's flip over to Acts 19. We're going to keep going there this morning. If you remember last week, we looked at more of the uh, personnel that were in the story, as it were, uh, Paul and these disciples and so forth. And so what we're going to do this week is we'll read it and do a quick recap and then jump into not so much of the people involved and what they were doing, but more along the lines of who is the Holy Spirit and what is he doing? Because it's a little, it's kind of a widely, I think, debated, wondered about kind of mysterious topic in Christianity. And so hopefully we can just look at some uh, factual information and consider some ideas of what God is wanting to do in our lives. So if you don't mind, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened, uh, excuse me, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about twelve men in all. Now, the thing about the topic of the Holy Spirit is that we all come from different traditions, right? And it's very, it can be very difficult uh, to, to kind of flush out and figure out what is the Holy Spirit doing and who is he? And the goal today, honestly, is to not make any judgment calls on any gathering of believers or idea about it. And what I mean by that is that I think I've kind of come to a conclusion, and it's a James Aiken opinion, and you can throw it out in the trash. But I think, in, in, large, in, in general, that our relationship with the Holy Spirit, for most of us, is based on our essential, essentially our, our mental and emotional makeup and how we were raised. Now, I'm not trying to reduce the Holy Spirit. I'm not minimizing the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Lord is the Lord. And he is all the authority. And I'm not trying to minimize the Holy Spirit and make him an errand boy or anything like that. I'm just saying that so many times, like, for example, uh, we, whether you're from a, a, a super conservative background or you're from a, a charismatic or Pentecostal background, uh, you're, we're going to view things differently, right? So I'm a fairly conservative person just as far as, like, I'm a hand-in-the-pocket worshiper. Uh, every once in a while I get crazy and get, like, a T-Rex going or something. But for the most part, like... You know, I'm not, this is not my, my jive, it's not my jib, and that's, and that's just who I am, because it's how I grew up, and, and I feel uncomfortable doing more. But there's many of our brethren that have, a, a charismatic brethren, that are very excited about worship, and we don't want to minimize that. And, and the way I think of it is like this, I can remember occasions in my own life, uh, whether it was actually going to a sporting event or sitting on the couch, and actually standing up off the couch and being excited because like a little black puck went into a net, right? And, and, and if, you, if you go to a stadium, when my wife and I, when we got married, we took our honeymoon, we went to Canada, and uh, we were in Alberta, so we, we caught a Calgary Flames game. And it was really exciting. They actually have this gigantic flamethrower in the ceiling that with the flame score, it like shoots this like 60-foot flame out, and I'm pretty sure I lost hair. It was, it was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> But what would happen was there was a few times during that game where there was just wild cheering, deafening, deafening cheering. One was, or a couple of them were, when the Calgary Flames scored, they were playing the Boston Bruins, and, and the whole place would stand up and cheer and just roar. The other time that there was this giant cheer, and it was louder than the, um, uh, than the, the scoring cheer, was a naked man jumped onto the ice. <laughs> So he came over the wall in red socks, and that was it. And the problem was, when he came over the other side, he hit the ice, and he just slipped and knocked himself out. And so there's a naked man laying face up on the ice. And, and so one of the trainers runs out and puts a towel over his unmentionables, 
And then the mounted, the, what are the mounted bounties or whatever they are, they come out, they get him on a stretcher, tie him down, and they start wheeling him out on the stretcher because he was knocked out. And he comes to on the stretcher, and he reaches his arms up like this, and the whole crowd, the whole stadium, yeah! I mean, it was, I have never heard anything like it since, ever. And that was for goals and naked people. <laughs> These people were so excited. They were so amped. And there was this enthusiasm and this excitement. Like, this naked man just did something crazier. This guy got a puck in a net. It was so amazing. And there's this emotional release and roar, and everybody's super excited. So in my mind, I think to myself, for me personally, I, no accusations. Why is it that I don't feel comfortable giving like a mighty roar for the Lord? And I can't explain that. I'm not here to justify it or to minimize it or anything. I'm just saying that, that there's different people and we have different emotional and, and intellectual makeups. And one is not better than the other. And it's important to remember that, that, that in the end of the day, if you're in a gathering for a people, full of people and their heart is unified in just a roar for Jesus and excitement and a dance or a, a waving a flag or something, hey, God bless them. I mean, can we really walk in there and be like, hey, <laughs> calm down. This is only Jesus we're talking about here. Amen. Would we do that? I hope not. If I personally went to those gatherings, I feel very uncomfortable because that's just not who I am. It doesn't mean the spirit isn't moving in that way. It means that me as a person, I, I'm unable to comfortably relate to that. And so also, if we had a, a person here and they whipped a flag out and they were just, yeah, we would all go, where are the deacons? <laughs> what is happening right now? We wouldn't be able to worship because we're mostly a, most, a more conservative gathering. It doesn't make them wrong, per se, in, maybe in the context. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't wave a flag or be excited about Jesus. It just means for where we're at, we can't focus on anything but that flag. Because it's not, it's not, our, it's not how, how we typically worship. So our goal today in talking about who the Holy Spirit is and, and what he's doing, it's really important that we're not here to try to establish this, this is what the Holy Spirit does, and he never deviates from this plan. It's just not true, and it's just not real. But instead, today, to look at a, a very important topic and, and to say, just to lay basic ground rules and scriptural realities of how we can know who the Holy Spirit is according to the scripture and then we can know what exactly is he doing. Next week, we'll talk more about the manifestations of, of the Holy Spirit and how these things can come out in a gathering, an individual conversation, prayer, all those kinds of things. But as for this week, just to note, by review, remember Paul shows up in Ephesus and he, he, he brings, he meets these people, 12 people, and he asks them. And we don't know, if, was it the Holy Spirit that motivated him to ask? Was it just... Uh, somebody told them, hey, these people don't really walk in the Spirit much, whatever it was, but he meets these people, and it's important. They're believers, right? He, he asks them, when did you believe? And not only are they believers, they're, they're disciples. So these are disciples of Jesus, meaning they're trying to be like Jesus, they're trying to learn about Jesus. And for some reason, I just get a kick out of this answer, and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved, when you were baptized? And they go, they go no, and... We don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. And I love the fact, not to, not to make it a goal, but I love the fact that you can be ignorant and saved. <laughs> you don't have to understand everything. I'm not making a, a, a goal for ignorance. I'm not saying like, hey, let's throw out any kind of learning or anything. I'm not saying that. But, but to, to, to think that, that these guys, like, hey, all we know, he, we had the baptism of John. All we know is that Jesus took away our iniquity. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last week, the idea of avon, the Hebrew word avon, and it just means to be crooked or perverse. And so all the references, or not all, excuse me, many of the references in the Old Testament about Messiah is that he takes away the sin of the world or he bears the iniquity, right? He will bear the iniquity of my people. And the picture that's being produced there in the old covenant is that Messiah would come, the blood of bulls and goats, it smeared over, it covered sin. It never forgave sin. It covered sin. But then Messiah would come and he would take the perverseness, the crookedness, 
that really the outcome from our actions, and this is that he would bear our iniquity. So, for example, in the Old Covenant, when, when God says, I'm going to visit the iniquity upon this people, the idea is that their, the consequences of their sin, of their corruption, crumble because they're crooked and oppress them. And so the picture is that God says, I'm going to allow that to happen for them to be crushed by iniquity. And then also that happens, right, in Isaiah 53, that he, he was bruised, but he was crushed for our iniquity. The idea is that Christ bore the crushing force of our crooked and perverse ways. And John's sermons, if you remember, that we have recorded were very simple. Make straight the paths of the Lord, a response to avon or iniquity. This is perverse, it's broken, it's crushing. Instead, don't be perverse, but make your path straight. In other words, make it easy for you to get to God and make it easy for God to get to you, a straight path. Straight path. So these guys, they tell Paul, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. What we do know is that Christ, Jesus, bore our iniquity, that he, he took care of our avon as Hebrew people, that he took it away from us. And so Paul says, oh, okay. He explains the baptism of John. And then he says, but I'm going to baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. And he baptizes them. And then it says he laid hands on them. And then it says the Holy Spirit came on them. So it seems pretty important to know who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing, uh, not to try to present or bring in some sort of mania. Not, I'm not calling charismatics mania or something like that. But just please, please like, don't come away with anybody, James, criticizing anybody in this, because I'm, I'm really not. I'm just trying to use terms that, so we can understand it. But instead of trying to develop some sort of mania to drum up, but to really look at who is and what is he doing and the importance, if Paul's walking around saying, do you guys have the Holy Spirit in your life? It seems that we might want to ask the same thing. So first of all, as we kind of get started, it says here that the Holy Spirit came on them. And the word there is a P uh, in, in the Greek. And it really just means to be, uh, to essentially fall upon or be on or something to be over. Okay, that's the idea that, that he was over there. And then other places, the scripture uses the word baptized in the spirit and these, these different terms. And that's why I think sometimes talking about the Holy Spirit, working through who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing, it can be confusing or mysterious because there are so many different terms that the Bible uses and then Christianity uses. We kind of use our own terms sometime to kind of figure out what he's doing. But first and foremost, there's three essentially uh, uh, prepositions, or uh, if you're not familiar with a preposition, it's just, it's just your position with something, essentially. So you have a P, which is a pawn, and then the other two are found in John chapter 14. These are three prepositions that are used by the scripture to talk about where, kind of where, metaphorically, the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing. So uh, John chapter 14, he says there, oh, verse 16, I believe it is. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So we're jumping into a thought. Forgive me for that. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So one of the things that's important about who the Holy Spirit is is how he relates to us and where he is. So in Acts, these people are saved. They know Jesus. They're getting to know Jesus. And then Paul prays for them, lays hands on them. And we'll talk more about that, the kind of the mechanics of that next week. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them or on them. And so that was a P. Here, Jesus says of his disciples that the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. So the word for with there, it, we're not trying to like be super smart here or something. We're just trying to get a, a handle on things. The word with you, with, is para. And we use that prefix all the time in English, right? We have paratroopers, right? And they're people that use parachutes to they go alongside of other soldiers. We have paramedics. They are a group of people that work alongside doctors. That was the whole reason for them. A paramedic works based off a of protocol. That's why the ambulance never has to call anybody when they're going to do something, 
because they already have pre-laid out protocols by doctors, and the doctor signs a piece of paper and says, I'm authorizing these people with these certifications to do these procedures in my name, basically. And so they're paramedics. They're alongside the doctors, the medical professionals. So the idea of para, that's what it is. It's the, the Holy Spirit, he says, he is currently with you. Now, these are two of the disciples. And then he says, but he will be in you, E-N, in you. So we have these three prepositions. We have with, in, and upon. And these are important because at this point, remember the New Testament, and this is always kind of weird to think about, the New Testament, as far as the Gospels, takes place in the Old Testament, right? Because this, this is an intertestamental period. You can say that at Christian fellowships and impress people. It's the intertestamental period. And what's happening is Christ has not died yet. So even though we have these books in the New Testament, these people are still walking in the Old Covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sacrifices are still going on. They're still valid. And Christ eventually will die and take away the sin of the world. But for right now, that's what's happening. And so the, the Holy Spirit has not yet come in his full role to indwell human beings yet. Now in John chapter 20, if you want to flip over there, In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to the disciples, and in verse 19, we read, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And he goes on. So what happens is, again, in the intratestamental period here, these are the first guys and gals, everybody who's in the upper room, to ever internalize the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you only read of the, new, the Holy Spirit, like David, for example, says, Don't take your spirit from me. In the Old Testament, you read of the Holy Spirit not indwelling people, but more being with people, being upon people, moving people, speaking to people. But now all of a sudden, that relationship's going to change, and it happens in this moment. From beginning from this moment on, now at a point of salvation, the Holy Spirit begins to indwell people. So if you think about it, in back, back in Genesis, when, when God creates human beings... What happens, he creates them out of clay, and then it says he breathed life into them. Remember that out of Genesis? He makes them out of clay. They're literally, we were just a clay body, lifeless, no soul, no spirit. And it says that God breathed into this clay assembly, and it became human. It became a person. And so likewise, we have that metaphor here, where God breathed physical life into Adam, and then later takes Eve from Adam. And now Jesus, in similar metaphorical fashion, breathes life into the disciples and tells them. He tells them exactly what he's doing. He blows on them and he says, receive the Spirit. Obviously, again, a metaphor. All the way back to Genesis. And he's saying, I'm now giving you my Holy Spirit to be in you. Now, again, this terminology, a lot of it is metaphorical. Uh, working on the ambulance, I've seen the insides of a lot of people, and I've never seen the Holy Spirit. There was never any glowing mass that was in there. Nothing like that ever happened. So the idea of him being in us is not necessarily a bodily thing, although he does strengthen our body. It's a bonding with our soul. And this is important. Important enough for Paul to start going around everywhere and asking people, do you have the Holy Spirit? Is he working in your heart? Now we know uh, that, that it, we know now it does occur at the point of salvation, and we'll talk about that. So as far as does the Holy Spirit have the authority to do this? Who is he? What is he doing? And I'm not just going to, I don't want to just rattle off verses, but I'm going to just rattle off verses, so just roll with me. I realize that this cannot be very helpful, but if you're interested, you can write them down and, and check them out later. But this idea of a trinity and of multiple uh, persons in, of, of our God is from Genesis. It, comes, it starts in the beginning. In Genesis 1.26, when, when the Godhead is in time, has created time and has created the world, and somehow they're standing in time, evidently, in the world, but yet being eternal, 
They say, let us make man in our image. It's noteworthy. Let us make man in our image. So you have this plurality, us, but a singular our. There's one image. Let us make man in our image. This idea is carried through into the new, or excuse me, into the old covenant. When Moses is about to bring the people into the land before he ends up dying on a mountaintop, but in Deuteronomy where he's rehashing the law and, he, and he's telling them, reminding them of the law so they can enter into the land, one of the things that he notes there in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. And if you go back there and you want to look in Deuteronomy 6.4, you'll note in, in most Bibles, English Bibles, the word Lord is where it's all capitalized. You guys noticed that before? You're reading along and, and sometimes the word Lord will be all caps. And what that is, is it's a reference to God's proper name. For us, we just translate it Lord. But in the Hebrew, the, the, so the scriptures that we have, the scraps, about, you know, whatever, 2,500 scraps or so that we have are of the Old Covenant, of the, the Old Testament, it's where it's, some Bibles will even translate it Jehovah, but even that is not necessarily completely accurate because it's, nobody knows what it is. It's Yahweh with no vowels. So the, the Hebrew people found God's name so sacred that they left the vowels out when they would scribe it and write it. So nobody actually knows how to pronounce what would be believed to be God's proper name anymore. So the idea there is when it says Lord, it says, Hear, O Israel, your Yahweh, or your Jehovah, is one God. Now, if you look at the word God, it's Elohim. So El in the, English, or in, the, in the Hebrew would be God, and Him or Ohim is the plural. So the literal translation in this Old Covenant is, Hear, O Israel, your Jehovah is, uh, your Jehovah is, uh, excuse me, yeah, Hear, O Israel, your Yahweh, or your Jehovah, is, is one God's, one Jehovah. So it seems weird to us. So for our sake, they translate it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, is one Jehovah. But the reality is, whether it's let us make man in our image, if it's the, the proclamation of Deuteronomy that the Lord our God is, is one Lord, we believe in one God. We're, we're not polytheists. Nobody has to get scared. But the idea of the Trinity is seeded throughout Scripture from the beginning until the end the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, is the Holy Spirit part of that trinity? Then we can ask ourselves that. Well, it's interesting, in, in Matthew, when Jesus is telling the disciples how to baptize, he says, you know, go into the world, make disciples, and then he says, baptize uh, in, my, in the name of the Father, and in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. So we see this equality here. He says, I'm calling you to baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then again, and if you were to look at Acts chapter 5, there's a very interesting thing occurs. Maybe some of us are familiar with Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias and Sapphira come in. Well, first it's the husband that comes in, and he lies about selling the land. And he tells Peter, he says, hey, I sold the land for this much. And Peter says, was it this much? And he goes, yeah, it was that much. And then he says, you have not lied to man you lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. Then in, in verse 6, he says to him, you, didn't, you lied to God. So you have this equation all of a sudden. Not only are we baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but now we have this equation in Acts where Peter for us links and says, the Holy Spirit is God. He's, part, he's one of the Trinity in Elohim, in the Lord our God. Then we can see again in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, where Paul is kind of wrapping up one of his letters to the Corinthians, and he, he encourages them, and, he, and he's calling them to draw near. And he says, to the grace of Jesus, to the love of the Father, and to the fellowship of the Spirit. Once again, that, that triune, that unity. And, and you can even see, and you can break it down more and do a study if you like. I think it's pretty interesting that these, these uh, attributes that he gives to each part of the Godhead that kind of is, is, is their role, right? The Father, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus came to the world, and what did he do? He says, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And he was gracious, and it was grace that led him to the cross to pay for our sins. And then you have the Holy Spirit, and now his role, and, and Jesus would tell us there in, in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will take of mine, of Jesus, of mine, and he'll give it to you. 
See, the Holy Spirit, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. One of the, what he's doing is he is ushering and helping and blessing God's people to be involved in what God has for them. And so that's why Paul says, hey, the fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit is all about fellowship. In fact, we'll read a couple of verses where that's his main goal, is to bring fellowship amongst believers and to make a place where God can dwell with believers and, and uh, work and move amongst them. So as you can see, and there's other ones to, to, to talk about. He has emotion. And we're told that he can be grieved. We can talk, we're told that he has joy. We're told all sorts of things. Again, we're not saying any of this to minimize him, but to really to point who is the Spirit and what is he doing. He is a person and part of the Godhead, and he has a very personal ministry in every believer, in every one of us, and then also corporately among our church and all the churches. That's what's happening. So then, what is he doing? If he's... Upon people, if he's next to people, if he's in people, what is he doing? If you don't mind, uh, we can turn back to John. And in John 16, I promise you I'm not just trying to make a big intellectual adventure here. I think that uh, hopefully by the end we can see this is actually extremely encouraging and practical. But in John chapter 16, it says there in verse 6, he says, but because I have said these things to you, that is, Jesus has told them he's going he's gonna to go away, he's going to die and then go uh, be raised from the dead and, and be, go to heaven. He says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and the word there is uh, parakletos, to someone who comes alongside and helps, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit is important enough that Jesus says, and this is pretty radical, I'm not sure I can fully comprehend it. Jesus says, it's actually better that I leave the earth. He says, I know that you're disappointed because I'm telling you that I'm going to go away and sorrow has filled your hearts. But he's saying to them, it's better for me to leave. Which in my mind, I'm like, no, it's really not. Because if you were stayed, you could keep telling people for 2,000 years who you are. And then they would believe you. Just like they did back the... maybe not. He says, it's better if I leave. See, Jesus is not going to indwell every one of us. The Holy Spirit indwells every one of us. I know we say in kids' class, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? That's fine. And we're not trying to, you know, draw weird technical lines here or something like that. But the, the, there are verses metaphorically talking about keeping Jesus in your heart and whatnot. But the idea is that the Holy Spirit bonds us to God, like the whole triune package, as it were. And so here he's, he's making these pretty awesome statements where he's saying, it's better for me to go because by going, we'll have more intimacy. The helper will come. He will indwell you. He'll be with you and in you, something that Jesus can't do. In that time, in that place, Jesus could only be in one place. He was the Savior that could only talk to one person. But now through the Holy Spirit, through him leaving and him sending the Holy Spirit, every one of us has access to the Father. In fact, that's one of the verses we could look at, is the fact that our access to God comes through the Holy Spirit in our life. So we can go on a little bit here. So he says there in verse 8, he says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father uh, and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. And we're not going to go all through those, but just to make a note generically, that part of what the Holy Spirit is doing, remember it says that he was alongside the disciples there in chapter 14, Part of what he's doing, he's actually besides, beside all human beings because he is convicting people of their sin. This is really good news. I am not saying that there's never a time to talk about sin with a person. So please don't, we're not talking about like sape agape and cheap grace or you know, whatever book we've read lately. We're talking about the fact that Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit by him returning and the Holy Spirit is continually 
convicting people of their sin. Do you know what that means? We don't have to. We don't. You know, isn't it interesting that, that Paul says that we're the aroma of death to those who are perishing and the aroma of life of those who, who believe? It's not, it shouldn't be any surprise to us if we meet people. Not because if we're just rude and a jerk, well, then they hate you because you're rude and a jerk. But we will meet people that we will just be kind to and love, and they will hate us. And do you know why? Because the very scent of your love and care for them convicts them of their own sin. Let's just be honest. We've all been there. We've been there when somebody is like, why are you so happy? Calm down. We've been so selfish before. We have a pity party and we go on to Facebook and invite everybody to it. We vague book something. Life's hard. Enter. And then we check back over and over again. How many likes did I get? How many? What's going on? Come to my pity party. Everybody's welcome. We do that. We're so weird and broken. It's crazy. I don't want to get too sidetracked on that. But, but the reality is people know they're sinners because the Holy Spirit is telling them because he loves them and he's convicting them. And when people do things, maybe you can even remember that as an unbeliever where you ripped someone off or treated someone poorly or whatever it might have been. And even though you weren't a believer, there was this radical guilt now, humans are actually pretty incredible, and the Bible says that we can actually sever our conscience, that as a human being, we can actually come to a point where we don't even hear the Holy Spirit anymore, and we just go, boop, I'm not, and we can go into some pretty radical wickedness from there. But he is constantly, so again, nobody's saying you don't ever talk about sin, but when you meet people on the street, they know. They know. It's my personal opinion again, I think that there are probably very, very few actual atheists. It's just a really cool thing to say. And, and one of the things that you might have noticed is that atheists are pretty ticked off at someone they say doesn't exist. It's a weird dynamic. There's not many atheists out there, if any. There's just people that are like us. They're stubborn, and they, they're not yet willing, if they ever will be, to accept the fact that they're sinners. It takes a certain grain of repentance and humility just to admit, like, I'm broken beyond repair. And short of divine intervention, I cannot be helped. And it it's, it's, seems opposite, but it, it takes a, 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 some humbling of oneself to, to get saved. Anyway, we'll keep moving. So he, that's his role in, in the unbeliever's life. Verse 12 goes on. Now we'll talk about believers. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Again, I don't want to just go off on a tangent, but I will. He, you know, Jesus says this. Think about this for a second. Jesus says, I have a lot to say to you, but you can't bear it now. You don't have the strength, the understanding, or the emotional fortitude to receive what I have to say to you. Tuck that away. Because when there, there will be people in your life that you want to help and you just can't because they cannot bear what, they have, what you have to say to them. We have to be moved and led by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine if the Lord revealed your entire iniquity, the depths of your sin to you in a moment? I don't think that would be a survivable event. How discouraged do you get when God reveals one thing to, your, to you and you've been like, I've been doing that for 30 years I've been talking to my spouse that way for 30 years. I treated my children like that. They're grown up. I did that, I did that for 20 years. I had this habit, this whatever, this addiction for 20 years. God's just revealing it to me. How crushing a blow is that to you? Imagine if God just one day just said, here's, here's what you're really like. I don't, it's insurvivable. In, in, in EMS, it's, it's conditions not conducive to life. They couldn't bear it. I think it's okay to acknowledge that there's a time and a place to share things with people. And we want to be led by the Spirit, and we'll talk more about that when we do it. So Jesus says to them, you can't bear what I have to say to you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and in time, he's going to reveal everything I want to say. That's what he says, right? He says, but you cannot bear them now. When the, Holy, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And when you can make the argument, they should have been ready for all the truth right now. 
We all should be ready for all the truth right now, all the time. And if you're not, maybe you're not saved. Isn't that kind of weirdness that we get into? You, they were still Jews. Do you, I mean, if you study it out, the timeline between Acts and Galatians and some of these things, Peter, Barnabas, right? These are some big names in Christianity. They struggled with Judaism and legalism for 20 years after Christ was raised from the dead. 20 years later, Peter is still separating himself from eating with Gentiles. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you came into the church and a couple of people were like, ah, yeah, we're saved, but here's the thing. We have Jewish descent, so we're going to sit over here at the potluck, and you can't come to our table because you're not Jewish. Two decades later, Peter is struggling with that. And the whole time, the whole book of Hebrews is based on people of faith. It's written to Christians who are struggling with going to back to Judaism. Why? Because until 70 AD, if Christ is crucified in, in one or two, depending on your, you know, however you want to count the years, if he's crucified, it's 70 years before the temple is destroyed. So every day for 70 years, while they're being killed and hunted as Christians, they can look up at the smoke coming out of the temple, and they know, I can have my family back, I can have my business back, I can have my life back if I just go up there and sacrifice something. And so Paul, writing to the Hebrews, is saying, don't go back to it, There's, that's a dead religion, There's, you don't have to do that. And that's like written in like 60-something. So you have... Three score years, at least, where Christians are tempted and struggling going back to Judaism. And God is so kind and he's so merciful. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. You can't handle what I'm about to tell you. There's no way that Jesus could have looked at Peter and said, your animal sacrifices never forgave sin. You abstaining, remember what's Peter's response when God lowers the sheet down with the animals? He's a Christian for a decade. And his response is, nothing unclean has ever entered into my mouth, Lord. God is so great. He's so merciful. And the Holy Spirit is there. And he's helping us along. And he's moving. And he's kind. And he knows that there's just sometimes you can't handle this yet. This would destroy you. But in time, I'll lead you into all truth. That's who he is. He's the truth speaker. He's the perfect truth speaker because he knows when to say it. He knows when to prompt you to say it, and he knows when to prompt you to be quiet, and me too. He is a, he is, his ministry is precious, and it's amazing. And to think that that's how God looks at you, take a deep breath and realize that you have the grace of God in your life. And the Holy Spirit is not there to smash you, He's not there to drive you. He's not there to bring you to places that you can't handle. He's waiting on you, and you get to come to him, and then he reveals things to you. But he's not interested in crushing or enforcing anything. The Holy Spirit is there because he's building something amazing, and he knows exactly how to do it. We'll go on. After this, and is moving in, the, in the, the unbelievers, and now we see he's speaking truth to believers. It says there, and, and we'll read this now, but probably come back later to it so we don't have to turn back to here. But in verse 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. So we have some very important points about what the Holy Spirit is doing. He will glorify the Lord. The Holy Spirit will never not glorify the Lord. And later on, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but later on, one of the things that, that, he, that we're told the Holy Spirit does in Ephesians 2.22, it says that the Spirit is building a temple out of us for God to dwell in. So the Holy Spirit is never going to do something that would jeopardize or, or detract from God building his house. In other words, there's, again, and this is not a mockery, I very, I much, very much believe in the gift of prophecy in these things, but when somebody comes along and they say, I have a prophecy, and here's the thing, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, and God's he hates you and he's really mad at you. That is not of the Lord. It's not. 
Because it doesn't build up. It doesn't help. It doesn't encourage. It doesn't promote fellowship. Now, could someone come along and say, hey, the Lord gave me a word, and I think he wants to deliver you from X, Y, Z. That's very much a thing the Holy Spirit does. And you'll know it because it'll be a witness in the other person. And they'll say something like, that's crazy. No one, I haven't told anybody that. But I've been agonizing over that. I want to be delivered from that. The Holy Spirit, he's always building up. He's taking from Christ what Christ has and wants to say, and he's bringing it to us under Christ's authority, and he's telling us he's always going to glorify God, he's always going to be speaking about Jesus, and he's always going to be lifting up. Again, we're not making commentary on what anybody's doing in their churches. We're just talking about Bible truth so that we can walk in and know what he's wanting to do in our lives. If you wouldn't mind, flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. So after speaking to unbelievers and after declaring what he's going to do in our lives, we have kind of some steps that the Holy Spirit's doing. And in Ephesians chapter 1, and in verse 13, I encourage you, if you're ever discouraged, Ephesians chapter 1, pretty, pretty uh, solid chapter about God's blessing and his kindness. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, In him, that's Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, and uh, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So with the first work of the Holy Spirit, and when someone gets saved, when someone comes to the Lord and acknowledges, I accept your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, I accept that you paid for my sin, that you bore my iniquity, that you rose from the dead, and I want the forgiveness that you have for me and that you bought for me at Calvary. And the moment that that happens, right, he says, in the, in the moment that you believed, the Holy Spirit says he sealed you. It doesn't mean like he sealed you up tight and like you're in some vault or an envelope and nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. That's not what the word means. The word means it seals to mark. And it's actually a reference to like a signet ring. You know, we all, maybe you recall, like, for example, uh, since we've all watched it many times, Lord of the Rings. And when Bilbo has, uh, uh, leaves, and he leaves the ring behind, and uh, Gandalf kind of picks it up and puts it in an envelope, or actually, he picks up the envelope, and Frodo puts it in there, and then he puts the wax on it, and then he puts the seal. That's, what, that's the idea. It's just a, a thing of authority. If the king were to send you a letter back in the day, this is the seal on it. Now we have those little gold stick-on things or whatever. But back in the day, it was wax and a ring. And so the idea is that when you believed, the Holy Spirit marked you as his, as the Lord's. Uh, for example, John tells us in John 1, he says, They who have believed on his name, that they have the right to be called the children of God. That's a, that's a glorious one. You know, not to, I'm not at all trying to wax political, but the... the the Constitution changes, right? You can add and you can, you can take away amendments from the Constitution. You can add and take away things from the Bill of Rights. With enough votes, those things can change. It is what it is. It's, it's how our representative democracy works. No one can take away your right to be called God's kid if you believed on his name. And the Holy Spirit did that. No one can. No one can look at you and go, I can't believe you did X, Y, Z as a believer. You're not really saved. They can't do They can do that, but they're lying to themselves. No one can take away your right to be called a child of God because the Holy Spirit sealed you. And it also says here that it's the guarantee or the, the, the down payment. Some translations actually render it down payment. That's the literal idea. That the Holy Spirit is kind of the down payment of your inheritance. In other words, you receive the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you when you got saved. And knowing that's the Spirit of God in you, knowing his promptings, knowing his workings in your heart, that's just the down payment of what heaven will be like. You know, it's interesting because in John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, there's some very fascinating prayers, components of his prayer, where he's saying things like, Father, I will that they all may be one as we are one as I and you and them and me. And he's going to go on to say, where they are, I want them with me. So there's this incredible unity evidently in heaven where there's a, a oneness, a oneness like we've never known before with one another, everyone we've slighted and hated, every Christian we've ever mocked, guess what? 100% unity with them in heaven. 
And that unity will be in Christ. We'll have a unity with God. Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. He says, we'll know as we are known. That's pretty wild. That we'll know Christ as he knows us. I'd say he probably knows us pretty good. Seems like it, right? We'll know him in that intimate way. He'll know us and we'll know one another. Heaven, I think, is going to be ridiculous. Not for like the crazy, like emerald, shiny throne stuff but because there'll actually be a lack of conflict before, between humans. Like, can you imagine a world that has no conflict between human beings? No conflict between you and your wife? No conflict between you and your kids? No conflict between other drivers? Right? No angst? No wrath? No measurement? No judgment? That sounds like the most peaceful wonderful experience a human being could have. And then to share that with Christ. He says that there's going to be rewards and that kind of thing, and you're like, that sounds really cool, but honestly, just true, real peace sounds pretty solid to me. That's what the Holy Spirit is always garnering. He is the down payment of that. He's the earnest money of that. The promise that God's going to do a full work and complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So hopefully as we're kind of looking through these things, they're not just, just kind of like analytics or statistics or, you know, some sort of academia of who Jesus, or excuse me, who the Holy Spirit is, but to really understand that there's this active person in my life that has the best for me and his whole job, which seems demeaning, doesn't it? Because he's God. But as God, his whole point in this new covenant is to encourage you and to be with you, which seems inappropriate. That should be my job. I should be doing everything to get to him. I should be doing every, you know, I don't deserve any of this. And that's the amazing part of it, is the Holy Spirit's not coming to people who deserve him. He's coming to people that just believe on the name of Jesus. And he's filling them, and he's working, and he's moving. And anybody who wants a part of it can have a part of it. But the first thing he does is he seals us. In Acts chapter 1, and we went through Acts, so we won't talk about it too much, but we talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit baptized them. And if you remember, the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, and this is another, just another point of that they weren't ready for everything that Jesus had to say, because they come to Jesus in Acts 1, right before he ascends, and they say, is this when you restore the kingdom uh, to, to us? Is this, is this where we get the kingdom back? In other words, is this where you trash the Romans? Are you, are you going to trash the Romans now and give us this kingdom back? In other words, they had no idea what Jesus was doing. Even like three days later, 40, I guess at that point it's probably 40 days, but you know, like they have no idea. None. And so kindly, he just says, no, 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 it's not for you to know the times. It's not for you to know when the kingdom comes back. He goes, instead, I want you to do something. I want you to wait here, and my Holy Spirit will fall upon you. And when he does you will receive power, dunamis, where we get our word dynamite or dynamic. A dynamic movement of power will come into your life. And this is where, depending on your tradition, whether you're conservative or charismatic, we have different ideas of what that means. And for a conservative that's fearful of charismatic, your idea is all of a sudden, everybody's going to get crazy. Right? And if you're a charismatic, you're thinking, I don't know what you're thinking, I've never been charismatic, but you know, you're, you're excited about what God could do, and, and all these possibilities. Or, or maybe you have an idea of what it should be, or, or whatever it might be. But the, all of a sudden, we're just still just looking at, what does the Bible say would happen? In their case, Paul tells us that, that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. I'm not here to, that's not the full doctrine of it. But Paul tells us that, that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. So what happens when it falls on them? They start speaking in tongues. In their case, the tongues that they're speaking could have been angelic, prayer languages and whatnot, but instead there's this rushing wind, the tongues of fire, that was probably trippy, and then all of a sudden all these people hear the rushing wind, they show up at the house, and they're like, what is this great noise? And then they all start preaching the gospel in languages that none of them knew. The supernatural manifestation of the Spirit comes out. Would, that's not weird, right? I mean, seriously, that's, we shouldn't be freaked out by that. That shouldn't be scary. That should be like, that was pretty cool. I mean, can you imagine just like you get off the plane, you're somewhere, and all of a sudden, not that I recommend doing this, you probably should learn the language, but you know, you you could just talk to people. 3,000 people get saved. Can you imagine that? Would any of us look back on that and go, 
Tongues are stupid. I can't believe that. That's so crazy. God would never do that. There's very popular Bible teachers that have whole commentaries that will say that if you believe the Holy Spirit is doing that, you're not really saved. I mean, there's some scary stuff about this. But God is still working. He's still moving. He's still doing great things. He's sealing. He's giving power and dynamic. Again, this idea of when the Holy Spirit fell on them, they, they already had the Holy Spirit in them because they were saved back in Acts 19. But now this extra event occurred and it, the Spirit empowered them to do something that was needful in the day, to share a prophetic word. And really a prophetic word can range from, you know, you have Agabus. He's one of my favorite uh, characters in Acts. He just like pops in now and again. And he's like grabs Paul's belt and like wraps Paul's hands on it. And he's like, thus will happen to the man who goes to Jerusalem. <laughs> You're like, that's sweet. Dude. I'd be a little weirded out if somebody did that to me. But he was, you know, he was doing it. He did that. He predicted the fact that Jerusalem would go through some hard times. Prophetic words like, hey, you know what? You guys are about to really hit some hard times. So these guys over here can help you out financially. That seems like a good thing, right? That doesn't seem like a scary bad thing. But anyway, he gives us power. Ephesians 2, he gives us access through the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, and in verse 18, it says this. And speaking of Jews and Gentiles and how God's reconciling us, and it says there, and through him we have both access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. The point he's making there is that the Jews and Gentiles go through the same Spirit. There's no separate but equal. Jews and Gentiles go through the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, we have access to God because He's in us. He's part of us. He's somehow melded or bonded to our souls and gives us spiritual life and then access to the Father through that spiritual passport or communicate, whatever you, however you like to look at it. And it's the same one for Jews and Greeks. He's going to go on to say there in verse 22, he says, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is built, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit is building us together. If we were to go through Ephesians chapter 4 and we talk about all these giftings, this Holy Spirit is moving and guiding and gathering so that ultimately, Ephesians 4 16, so that the body, us, builds itself up in love as every joint supplies. As every single person filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, that, that all of us have the opportunity to be. This isn't for an ex, ex, you know, the executives or something. We all have the opportunity to contribute to one another. See, the Holy Spirit is building a place where God wants to dwell comfortably. You know, it, it's a miserable place when your house isn't comfortable, isn't it? Absolutely miserable place. Whether it's conflict in the family or it could be a, a, a neighbor that loves to evil eye you, or you know, whatever it might be. But when your home is not comfortable, it stresses your whole life out. And one of the things the Holy Spirit is doing, I'm not saying that God gets stressed out, but one of the things that God, the Holy Spirit is doing is he's working in each one of us, as, as we will let him, as we don't want to go into it, as we talked before, we, are, we have incredible power as human beings. Incredible power. You know, we, we sing the song, what can stop the lion and the lamb? You can, really easily, by saying no. Because the Holy Spirit comes along and says, I want to do this thing. We go, no. And what happens? We literally rob the church. It's pretty crazy when you think about the, the, the uh, fallout from saying no to the Holy Spirit. When he comes along and says, hey, why don't you be kind to that person? No, they don't deserve it. I'm not going to do that. They deserve wrath, and that's what I'll give them. We actually destroy one another. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, invite that person over to lunch, and we say, no, I'd rather watch football. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, why don't you ask that person how they're doing? And you're like, mm, that's messy. I don't really want to hear it because I know that they'll rattle on for like 15 minutes and I won't actually care. When the Holy Spirit says, why don't you do this? And you're like, mm, no. Isn't it wild, the power that we wield for good and for evil? Because when the Holy Spirit says, hey, why don't you do this? You go, mm, okay. That sounds pretty good. Or, mm, okay. That sounds crummy, but I'm still in. And then you go do that thing, and what does it minister? Life. You literally change people's lives. It's incredible what can change a life. 
I've had small notes handed to me when I was a young man, when I was 16, 17 years old. And uh, there was a, a, a woman, she had a family, they had a lot of kids. And my parents weren't, uh, I have great parents, but uh, they weren't involved in my Christian life at all and, in the beginning. And uh, so this kind of spiritual mom kind of took over and never, she'd leave me little notes on my chair. And I still have some of them. Um, it's unfortunate, I think, to this day. She, I think she's left the Lord. I don't, I'm not saying she's unsaved, but she's kind of had a rough, a rough lot in life, and it's taken its toll, as it were. But I still have those notes because they changed my life. Just a simple note like, uh, you know, hey, God's looking out for you, and this little promise on it. Hey, God, God loves you. He sees you. A little promise on it. Literally changed my life. I can literally say, I'm here today. Hopefully it's a blessing. I'm here today because of this woman, Judy. Kept me going. See, the things that what we don't understand is that when we say yes to what the Spirit is doing, building, making a home for the Lord and for us, bringing unity, when we say yes to that, it, the smallest things change people's lives forever. It's incredible. And we have that opportunity. And when we say no, we also possess the power to change people's lives forever. It's interesting how if you treat a child like poo, they will grow up angry. They'll grow up with anxiety. They'll grow up wrecked. It's, it's incredible. As a parent, the kind of power that you wield, not just in your child's life, but in who they associate with, and who they marry, and who they talk to at work and at school. I'm not trying to make like a giant guilt trip here. That's not the point. It's not guilt. It's not shame. None of that. None of that's my heart. And I don't think it's the Holy Spirit's heart. What I'm trying to say is you've never lived an ordinary day as a Christian. It's never happened. There's never been a day in your life that didn't matter. You, we never had to have a boring day. But that every day we get up in the morning and through the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our lives, we have the opportunity to help people and to make this world, maybe not this world in the sense of all of our political views or whatever, but to the individuals around us, we change their lives. You know, and, what a, and I like how C.S. Lewis said, it's a burden that can only be borne on the back of the humble because the back of the proud will be broken because we can't do it ourselves. We'll keep going. A couple other verses and we'll adjourn. We already talked about this, but in 1 Corinthians 2.10, God's Spirit reveals God's truth to us. Ephesians 3.16, God's Spirit strengthens us in our inner being, in our hearts. And I love this one. Romans 8.27, God's Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. See, God loves you so much, and he knows how pathetic we are, that he knows that sometimes we can't even pray for ourselves. You ever had those situations where you're just like, I am so jacked, and I have so jacked this problem up, I have nothing to say. There's nothing I can say. I don't have, like, a lot of our prayers, if you ever notice this, they're kind of ABC prayers, like, God, A, if you could just make me filthy rich and never have problems, that's really what I really want. But, you know, B would be like a decent job and minor problems, and C would be like, if you feel like my life really has to be bad, like, I guess I'm into it, but I really prefer not to have that. But then there's like some things where we're just like, I just don't even know what to pray. Things are so jacked. They're so messed up. I don't deserve squat from you. I broke everything. And then the Holy Spirit kicks in and says, I know what to pray. I know how to pray for you. It's a weird system. Let's be honest. It's a weird system that God has set up, that he is triune and yet one. And the Holy Spirit goes to the Father in the Trinity, and says, yeah, you know, James, yeah, he's messed up. But he needs you, and you sent Jesus, and you made these promises, and I'm praying these promises over James, because he's, he's just, he's pathetic. So help a brother out. And then the Father says, you know my heart, Holy Spirit. I'll do that. And he works in our hearts. It's like foolproof. We can't even screw that up. It's amazing. This is what God, this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is why he's so important. Because he has such great things for us. And he loves us. And he's encouraging us. And he's bringing us along. 
And, and we don't have to fear the Holy Spirit or be anxious about what might happen in a meeting if the Holy Spirit comes out. We don't have to do any of that. We just have to say, yes, Lord. And if someone does something in a meeting that seems weird to us, we'll be like, oh, I don't know. Seems weird to me. But it's cool. I mean, as long as it's not like disruptive and they're saying weird stuff. But we can be those who are just like, hey, man, the Holy Spirit's working, and we're going to be part of that. He's, he intercedes for us. And it says, with, with groanings which cannot be uttered. So his intercessions aren't just like, ah, uh, yeah, you know, if you could do something like that. His intercessions, they're groanings. They're just, there's this burden the Holy Spirit has for you, this love he has for you, this desire to see greatness in your life, spiritual greatness. And lastly, in Galatians chapter 5, he bears fruit in us. And I'll just read it. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to, but in Galatians chapter 5, we'll end with this. There's a fruit from listening to him. He says, verse 16, he says, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not uh, gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against, excuse me, yeah, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes on, works of the flesh, we know all those. But he says there in verse, I'm not avoiding them because I'm afraid of talking about sin. Just want to throw that out there. I've gotten emails about that before. Sin always destroys, and you shouldn't do it. It will kill you if you do, and you will destroy those around you. But the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is this. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the point that he's making is this, that the flesh has its fruit, right? And we know the fruit of the flesh because we've walked it. We've done it, and we've done it to other people, and we know the fruit that they gained from our own flesh. We know that stuff. But the fruit of the Spirit, and this is, it's the Spirit's fruit. It's not our fruit. We do not become these things. It's Christ in us. It's the Holy Spirit in us working these things out of us. And he, and he frames it this way. He says, if we live by the Spirit, if we go back to Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, the, the definition we have this. If you're a saved person, if you have a life because of the Spirit, because he tells us in Romans chapter 8 that if we do not have the Spirit, we are none of Christ. So a person who is a believer has the Spirit of God, period. No matter how they're living, if they have a believer in Jesus Christ, they have his spirit. And then he says, and this is interesting, because he says, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. In other words, if we're saved, if we have the spirit of God inside of us, if we've been sealed by him, then let's walk with him. And he says, if you walk with him, if you let the spirit, the, the word that, that Paul uses in Romans is if we yield to Christ, if we yield to the Spirit, if we listen to and we partake in this new man in Christ, then what will come out of our lives supernaturally? And the reason I'm making a big deal out of it is because it's not, like for so many of us, for so many years, the legalist just goes, okay, now today I'm going to love. I just am going to love. And then we get cut off in traffic and we're like, love. I'm so PO'd right now, but I'm loving them. I do. And it's like this weird pretending dynamic. But what God is talking about is an actual supernatural change of heart where you get cut off in traffic and you legitimately go, God bless that guy. I hope he makes where he needs to go safely. From the heart. Like actually mean it. Not just for your kids behind you. Right? Like for realsies. And the Spirit will do that in our lives. We will actually supernaturally change and begin to truly love individuals, have compassion and care, to truly have joy, to not just go, okay, this really sucks, but I have the joy, 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 joy in my heart, but to really go, hey, you know what? I have cancer. I'm going to be okay, even if I die. I'm financially destroyed, but it's okay because I have Christ. 
like a true actual change, but it has to come from, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It has to come from a place where we say, okay, okay, whatever you want to do, however you're going to do it. And the more that we say yes to God, what we're going to find is it, like, it, it builds almost a, a maturity, a growth, and we get to know him better and we, get, we actually begin to taste and to see he really is good and his things are good and his commandments are not grievous. But it's weird how it always comes down to this tiny little thing of free will. It always comes down to, am I willing to let God do this in my life? And saying no, it won't make you unsaved, but it'll destroy you in this life. It'll cost you. It'll cost your kids. It'll cost your church. It'll, it'll cost everybody around you. There's no condemnation in Christ, Romans 8 tells us, but there's loss. But if you say yes, it's going to bless you, it's going to bless your kids, it's going to bless your church and everybody around you because you're going to love them and you're going to help them and it's going to be amazing. So every day, we just get to make a decision, is it yes or no? Every moment, we get to make a decision, is it yes or no? And the more we say yes, the better things get, and the more we say no, the worse things get. It's radically simple. It's just depressingly hard sometimes when the flesh wants to rage. But anyway, God bless you guys. Go with the Lord. He's got great things for you. You know, if you're sensing that you need a freshness and a refreshing in your life, I encourage you just to pray with me and ask the Lord for an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord for a freshness. Ask the Lord to do something new and great in your life. And he says that he will. Next week, we'll talk about the manifestations of the Spirit, how he works, you know, the practical outworking of these things in our lives and with one another in relationship and church and all that kind of stuff and how he's wanting to do great things in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace and, Lord, the opportunity to walk with you and to know you and uh, to say yes to you. Thank you you're merciful when we say no to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this week and give us opportunities uh, opportunities to say yes, opportunities to minister for your kingdom and to bless our families and our, our church, our kids, you know, all the, the, our coworkers, our people we go to school with. And Lord, I pray that we would have that Holy Spirit fire in us, that Holy Spirit fruit and love and uh, that great things would come of it. So thanks for being so kind to us and so merciful to us and really never giving us what we deserve. We really appreciate that. And we pray that your kingdom would grow through us this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.